Hello and welcome to Pod Academy. The most important method and mechanism for interpreting visual art is your own eyes and your ability to really see and to really look. That's the starting point of this lecture on how to interpret visual art by author, artist and filmmaker Gillian McIver. The lecture is one of a series on thinking put on by the IF project, the Free University in London. The most important method and mechanism for interpreting visual art is your own eyes and your ability to really see and to really look. Okay, so essentially you're in control of the interpretation of art. There's a lot of critics, there's a lot of theorists out there, and some of them are good and some of them are not, but actually interpreting (coughs) art is something that uh, you can do it yourself. The real way to interpret visual art is to actually go, stand in front of the visual art, literally physically look at it, walk around it, look at its texture, look at its color and everything like that. The internet will take you so far, but it won't take you quite into that position of actually interacting with it in person. I'm going to divide today's talk into three sections. The introduction will be basically looking at more traditional ways of interpreting art, okay, and then how we can perhaps, you know, shift that a bit, maybe alternative readings of, of art. The second section will be looking at the artist, what, what and who is an artist, and uh, how can we read what the artist is trying to tell us and what, is, what exists within the broader context that might help us to interpret an artwork. And the third section will be about visual art and artists and the times in which they live. Essentially, what does visual art tell us about the society in which the artwork operates? Is anyone here who has maybe done art, maybe made, done any artwork, made pictures or anything? So there's a few of you have the experience of the artistic process, um, and that can be quite interesting when you think about your work and your process and then how it fits into the bigger picture of um, how art operates, what it means for us. Now you know a little bit of who I am and what I do, and uh, my, my great interest is interpreting art in a very broad sense, you know, the sort of the social and cultural uh, way in which art is part of visual culture rather than uh, the traditional art histories, which is about influences and techniques. Although that's interesting, but to me it's not the whole picture. So let's, let's get going with the first section. The first section is simply a question, how, but perhaps more clearly, why do we interpret visual art? Why don't we just, why doesn't it just sit there on the wall and look nice? Why do we feel the need to look at it and ask the question, what does this mean? Now, I read a really interesting article, which was about how do, how do we know when something is really an artwork? Okay, and it's interesting because it's actually a science article. You know, you see sometimes a, a picture, looks like a kid maybe drew it, and you say, or maybe you wouldn't, but some people go, oh, my kid could do that, uh, or my dog could do that sometimes. Um, so some scientists decide, well, let's, let's see if that's true. Let's get a painting by an actual artist, like an abstract artist like Kandinsky, and let's get a 
picture done by a four-year-old, you know, both of them very colorful, shapes, abstract, and give them to people in blind tests and see, and pretty much universally everybody was able to pick out the artwork from the, this children's uh, picture, which makes it clear that actually we intrinsically do recognize when something is art, it communicates to us. It doesn't matter if it's representational, i.e., you know, re representing something which exists in the world that we could recognize, or abstract, uh, that we recognize when something is made to be art. So that's the first stage. Interpreting art is understanding that it is art. It's intended to be art. And I know there's a lot of jokes about people standing in the Tate Modern looking at the fire extinguisher because it's an installation. <laughs> But most of the time, we do actually know when something is art. We may, not, we may or may not like it. We have every right to like or dislike something. You don't have to like the Mona Lisa, okay? You're absolutely permitted to not like it. You, on the other hand, you're not really entitled to say that Leonardo was rubbish. You don't like it. That's fair. It's, it's a rubbish painting. Unfortunately, the weight of history and opinion is against that. But you're entitled to not like art. And I think that's something that's really important to know when it comes to any creative work, art, literature, anything like that. You don't have to like the thing. But, you know, you will have to engage with it. I mean, that's the first curve that I underwent when I started to be a researcher, that I had to look at films and look at paintings that I just didn't like because I knew that there was something valuable in them, that my pleasure was actually less important. The funny thing is, once I started to engage, I started to like most of them better, so it's funny how that works. But you don't have to love things in order to study them. Sometimes a bit of distance can actually be quite helpful. Now, how and why do we interpret art? Well, we, we interpret art because we're almost programmed to do it, but also because we understand that because it's art, it's made to communicate, it's made for a purpose, and we want to know what that purpose is. We also know that the artist had an intention when they made it, and that it also reflects aspects of the society in which it was made. So we're curious, because that's what we are by nature, so we want to interpret it. Then the question is, how do we do it? Well, the first, I suppose, serious attempt to interpret art and to really look at art in a, in a broader scale, was uh, Aristotle. Didn't really look at things, talked much about painting. Well, he did actually, but we've lost all of that. But he tried to identify the things that made art significant and important. Unfortunately, his writings on visual art disappeared. We don't have them. They may be dug up one day, but we don't have them. The first recognized art, I suppose, theorist, uh, certainly the first recognized art historian was Giorgio Vasari, who in the uh, middle of the 16th century wrote a huge, huge, huge text, uh, which has is, is got a really long title, like The Lives of the Greatest, Most Estimable, Most Wonderful Artists, uh, but it was usually just called Vasari's Lives. And what he did was quite interesting. He identified the artwork with the artist, and he wrote about the artists rather than the individual pictures or sculptures. So he, he was one of the first to really make it very clear that actually what's really important is 
that this thing is made, and it's made by somebody, so we need to know who that somebody is. Now, the book is still in print, and it's still um, widely used, although you know we know that some of what he wrote was just totally gossip. But it is still interesting. But of course, for our purposes, what's interesting is the way it identifies the history of art as the history of what we could call the great man approach. And it was great man because there are no female artists in Vasari's book. Now, I don't have time in this session to go into the whole history of why there aren't really very many female artists in the art history, but I have given you an article uh, which actually talks a little bit about contemporary um, uh, issues that curators are talking about, about trying to redress the balance. But there are some, obviously. There are some female artists, and if that's something you're interested in, you can certainly, in your own, on your own, uh, go and, and find out more about them. Okay, both the, the, the Tate has a fair, decent range of female artworks. The Tate, not some, uh, the National Gallery, not so much. So, Vasari's Lives of the Great Artists, as I said, first of all, it's linear, it's the history of art, uh, but it's very much about individuals. So that's the first way, and we very often do interpret art as the work of a person. And the, so the biography of the artist kind of bleeds into our reception of the works. So we see a Van Gogh painting, and we think, oh, that's Van Gogh. Oh, the guy who cut off his ear and then killed himself. Yes, but do you have to know that in order to appreciate a Van Gogh painting? Uh, I would say not. There's another problem is, do we then tend to read the Van Gogh painting because we know about that biographical information. So the great man theory of art can be a bit problematic because it gets us, as I sometimes call it the soap opera approach, you get so involved in the person's life um, that sometimes you, you it's like it becomes a, a sort of a, a filter over your eyes so you look at the pictures. So a few years ago there was a number of publications about uh, Salvador Dali's um, let's call it sexual proclivities. I mean, the guy was dead, so we could, don't know if it was true or not, but a lot of people spilled beans. And then, you know, the, after that, it was quite difficult to look at a Dali painting without looking for perversity. Um, but the fact of the matter is, do you have to look for perversity when you want to look at a Dali painting? Clearly not. So it's an approach. It's certainly, you know, since 1550, it's been an approach. But it's, it's a limited approach, so although I don't, I, it's very handy to know who it was that did the picture and a bit about them, uh, it's not necessarily going to take you very far in actually interpreting the work itself, okay? It could actually end up sort of taking you into uh, another direction. But of course it is something that publishers and filmmakers do like the old artist biography, so you'll find lots and lots of... Uh, of biographical studies of artists, some of them amazing. There's a great book about Caravaggio by uh, Andrew uh, Graham Dixon, um, and a great book about Goya by Robert Hughes, and I thoroughly recommend them. But you know, you'll find all kinds of weird biopics, which are you know sort of. I, w I watched one the other day, and it's like mm, there's a lot of not very honest things in here. So. The great man approach has its limitations. The second approach is a little bit less 
obviously um, soap opera-like, is looking at it really from a history approach, uh, linear history, looking at periods and movements. So it's about categorizing artworks into different time periods or different movements. Movements is when you get have a bunch of artists together who, whether they intend to or not, they start to kind of, you know, have a shared <coughs> direction. Impressionists is a good example of a movement. Uh, um, cubists. Uh, now there are problems with, with both of these approaches. So let's just have a look at them. Although, like with the Great Man approach, they have their uses, but I wouldn't want to encourage you to think that that's the way to do it. It isn't. But all of these things you can pick around within them. Periods and movements. Well, what's the benefit of them? Well, first of all, if you're looking at art from the point of view of periods, it does help you to get some idea of what might have been happening in the society at the time. So if you're looking at a Renoir painting, you'll know it was painted sort of towards the uh, late 19th century, so you're not going to confuse it with a painting that was painted in the Renaissance, even though they may both be colorful pictures of people. But the problem I think you can see straight away is that we have these huge periods here. So the early Middle Ages is a five centuries, fifth to the tenth century. Using a term like the early Middle Ages is fine, but sometimes you can get a bit confused when you realize that's 500 years of art history there. Uh, the same with the late Middle Ages, it's a little bit less, um, 1300 to 1500. Then we've got the Renaissance, which is about 300 years old. It's usually divided into early and late Renaissance. The Baroque period, most art historians seem to agree that it starts around about 1600, they argue about when it ends. Some say uh, 1700, 1750. Because, you know, we're making it up as we go along, basically. You know, we don't really know. And then finally, you know, we got to the neoclassical and right up to the present day. So periods, 20th century art, 21st century, post-war art. It's all about trying to to locate art within a historic continuum. So it can be useful for plotting it on a timeline, but again, you can't take that as the way to interpret visual art, because it lets you put it on a timeline, but it doesn't really help you to understand what links all of the artists of the Baroque period, for example. How do we take into account, for example, European art, once it comes into contact with art and artifacts from non-European culture. How do we categorize, for example, applied art that is such as you know, furniture, architecture, things like that, which is influenced strongly by these uh, periods. So we can say there's Baroque architecture, Baroque music, Baroque art. How do they fit together? Do they fit together? So the period is useful. But again, it's limited. The third example of traditional ways of interpreting art is through movements. And this is probably, in some way, the most confusing, especially if you're new to art history, is what on earth is a movement? Well, the interesting thing about movements is they're usually ideas which are applied afterwards. While an artist is making the artwork, they're very often unaware that they belong to a movement. I think in the 20th century, it starts to become, they start to become much more self-aware. They start issuing manifestos. 
such as the Surrealists, who were so desperate to be a movement, they put out a bunch of manifestos, actually, so did the Dadaists. But it's a, it's a way for, the idea of movements is a way for art historians, who are very aware of the limitations of period, to say, well, you know, within, for example, the, uh, the 19th century, which is a period, there are artists doing different things. And we can see how these sort of directions got the direction which we could call romanticism, we've got a direction we could call symbolism, and then later on we've got a direction we could call impressionism. And quite obviously they kind of lead into each other. So it almost becomes how do you weigh up how symbolist is this and how impressionist is it? Um, the convenient thing about movements is it does help you to understand uh, sort of key directions in art. So, uh, key use of, for example, techniques, uh, sometimes a shared ideology. But it doesn't really tell you much about all the other artists who may have been uh, working at the same time, but who didn't belong to that movement. So sometimes, for example, you'll get somebody writing a book about uh, America in the middle of the 20th century. So American art at the time was abstract expressionism, which was a movement, a movement of a few dozen artists, mostly working in New York, although not all, who were doing a particular kind of abstract art. And it's absolutely correct that that really was happening. But that's not <coughs> all of the art that was being made in America at the time. There were a lot of, art, of artists doing different things. There was somebody like Edward Hopper who did sort of uh, cityscapes with people. There were portrait artists. Um, there was all kinds of art being made at the time. That abstract expressionism was a sort of something that uh, the critics were very enthusiastic about. There, were a lot, there was a lot of narrative around the abstract mm -hmm. expressionists. But the, you run the risk of by the time you identify what I call the isms, you can end up being mistaken to thinking that that's what art in that period actually was. So you need to keep a quite an open, aware mind when you're trying to look at art, map it into a time frame, see if it can be considered to belong to a movement, but don't take the movement thing too seriously. Okay? Because even within Impressionism, they're all really different from each other. Okay? Uh, even within, say, Cubism, for someone like Pablo Picasso, Cubism, the idea of painting, a, hey, breaking down an image, taking away the idea of perspective, and trying to replicate on a two-dimensional surface every possible perspective of the object, he, he dealt with it. He did a bunch of Cubist pictures and then he moved on. Someone like George Braque or Jean Green, who were his friends working in the same studio, they continued to do Cubism. That was their thing. So for one artist, the movement of Cubism was a little kind of slice of his career. For others, it wasn't their career. So we could make a mistake, say, well, Picasso stopped being a Cubist after X number of years, so the movement died. Well, no, people were still doing it and still successful. So we've got three approaches, really. One, the great man approach. Two, the um, period approach and three, the movement approach. So let's just take one of those and just see how we might use it. We're gonna look at periods. So using the period approach, Gillian McIver put up pictures to illustrate her ideas. 
clearly this is an audio podcast so you can't see the pictures so what we've done is we've put up a list with links on our website www.podacademy.org It's about showing you the wonderful world of God and Jesus and, and everything like that. This is a, a, a sort of a fairly clear example of early medieval art. About 500 or so years later, here's an example of late medieval art. So, you know, late medieval, early Renaissance is one of those kind of in-between periods because the periods themselves are really imprecise, the dates, you know, the... Very similar thing in a way, it's religious. This is one of a huge number of pictures we painted called The Version of the Child and Angel. This is the one that's in the National Gallery. That was basically his job. Okay? Memling's job was to paint the version of the child and angel. He had a lot of paintings scattered around Europe. I mean, he did do other pictures too, but he cranked out a lot of these. Obviously, his versions his virgins with child and angel were really popular. They're also a little bit different because the angel on different sides um, has more than one angel sometimes. You can see that compared to the previous picture, it's quite a bit more lifelike. There is a sense of perspective going back into the distance. The figures are fairly stiff, though. Yes? Where would his influence of 
an angel come from? How would he have an idea of what that looked like? That's a good question. It's uh, you go back to the early, early medieval representations of angels and demons. Not that many pictures of devils, interestingly enough, and they seem to have agreed at some point. It's t I guess it's taken out of scripture the idea of the angels and their sort of ethereal, almost non-corporeal sense flying, but then they have to render it in paint. And um, there's things that they couldn't do with paint. One of the, I mean, today maybe you could use digital technology to create a kind of transparency layers. So they tended to go with white and a kind of long dress and wings. But the wings, of course, they very material. They look like what they were probably modeled on, like swan wings or goose wings. So it's about taking something that's really in your environment that you know, such as geese and swans, and trying to kind of transpose that onto this very unreal thing, the thing that you can't see, an angel, you can only conceive of it. Uh, and same thing with the devils. If you look at, at old uh, pictures of devils, they're often kind of reptilian or, um, you know, insect-like, because you have to still... You can't just completely imagine something that's not based on something you, you, you haven't seen. So you might distort it completely, but you can usually trace. And it's true for pictures of monsters too. Even you know, there's some really there's a really good one in the National Gallery by um, uh, uh, Cornelius van Harlem. It's called "The Followers of Cadmus Being Slain by a Dragon." It's gross. I shouldn't put it on here. It's horrible. It's basically a guy being ripped apart by a dragon. You've got his head lying on the ground. You've got his windpipe gushing blood. You've got a dragon sinking its claws all up close, and the picture's like that big. And you think, that's hideous. Where did he come up with this idea? And then you look at the dragon, it's, it's, it's a reptile. It's a sort of a, something between a, a lizard and a snake. So he takes that, and then he sort of blows it up, and he makes it really terrifying, as it probably would be. Um, but it's, it's, it's totally not real, but he bases it on this fragment of reality. And I think that's probably true of any uh, picture that's trying to show us something that, uh, that doesn't exist in, in, in the real world. We have to use our imaginations, but it's not pure imagination. We base it on something real. So we can see that uh, Memling has tried to go for a much more realistic-looking baby. Um, it's, it was difficult to paint Christ, actually, because the artists were quite torn. On the one hand, how do you paint the Son of God? That's a really tall order. On the other hand, it's got to actually look credible. So you see, if you interest, you can actually see a kind of a, an evolution of the painting of, of the Christ figure from essentially a miniature adult to some, something that actually looks like a real baby. Um, and that's quite an interesting uh, development. By the time, not that much later, we get into the Renaissance proper, so this is 1520, less than 100 years since Memling's picture, we've got Titian. Now, what we see in the Renaissance is paint, painting moves away from being purely religious. There's still lots of religious painting around, but we start to see painting of secular subjects, mostly, though not exclusively, pictures of mythical subjects. And this one's in the National Gallery. It's absolutely beautiful. And uh, this is by the Venetian painter Titian. It's, an, it's a picture of Bacchus and Ariadne. 
And I think Titian is a very interesting artist because he's one of the first to really effectively depict movement. That sort of that split second when motion is happening and he captures it. What you know, from the filmmaker's point of view, I would call it freeze frame. And I'd say that Titian is one of the first painters to paint what I would call cinematically. A picture that looks as though it could be from a movie. Of course, movie makers derive so much of their visual understanding from painters like this. And you see what he's got is he's got Bacchus in action. You see, there he is, and he's in action. He's in movement. So are his followers. This guy here is he's moving. And everybody's moving, and it's a big chaotic kind of, uh, they're all drinking, he's the god of wine, so they're all drinking and <coughs> partying, and, uh, and, uh, and you've got Ariadne moving that way, Bacchus moving towards her, there's a real chaos going over here. There's nothing static, the only static thing is this, not static, he's moving, but he turns around, he looks, he looks at the artist, he looks at you, and says, check this out. <laughs> so there's a real sense of movement in this, in this picture. Of course, we see uh, a natural-looking landscape, okay? and, uh, and we see action. And I think this is where we see the Renaissance being really interesting. We see action. Uh, now, lots of people painted Bacchus and Ariadne. Um, Titian's one of the greatest artists, and you know it when you look at his rendering of Bacchus and Ariadne against many others, um, because he's able to capture him in a really, really <coughs> impressive way. Moving forward in our timeline of art history, this is uh, about 100, just a little bit more than 100 years later. This is the period which we often call the Baroque period, the 17th century, which is an incredibly fertile time for painting. It's really maybe in some sense the greatest period Europe has ever had for painting. Um, Claude Lorraine is interesting because he wasn't really interested in people as subjects. He would very often hire people, hire other artists to put in the people. He was really interested in, uh, in landscape and particularly in trying to paint light. He's really interested in how can I paint what light looks and feels like. This, is, this one is called a seaport. And um, it's, uh, it's, a, it's not a real place. It's, a, it's essentially it's a collage of things he's seen and felt, and it's, it's really an imaginary uh, landscape. And, it just, and what he's really doing here is he's painting a mood. He's painting a feeling, but it's representational. Okay, it's, it's, he's painting something which we can cling on to. We can say, okay, that's a building. Uh, maybe that's the Port Authority building. There's a ship, there's a bunch of people in the front kind of doing whatever you do in the seaport. There's, uh, you know, there's boats. At the same time, we're not really that interested in the ship. We're not interested in, I wonder who's on that ship and what it's character. We're interested in the feeling that it's giving us. It's, a, it's kind of, it takes us out of ourselves. At this, but it's not telling us something that we need to know. Bacchus and Ariadne saying, this is Bacchus and Ariadne at this particular point in their story. <coughs> Claude is saying, this is a seaport. This is what the seaport feels like. So you can sit, I'm sitting here, looking over at everything, 
there's the hustle and bustle on the shore, there's the sun, you know, there's all of this going on. This is how I feel. So this, again, you can see there's, there's a, what consider, we're not changing so much as we're adding new ways of doing art into the way we have been doing it. Then we got into another period. This is the period at the end of the 18th century. It's a period that's sometimes referred to as the neoclassical period. As you can see from the date, it's uh, just before the uh, French Revolution. When um, This is an interesting time because the uh, archaeology just starts uh, in around the sort of late 18th century. Um, you got to, they start to discover the ruins, the, the ancient ruins in Greece. There starts to be a renewal of interest in the, in the remnants of ancient Rome. People start in the 18th century, we used to do the grand tour, they'd go and hang around in Italy. Sometimes the more adventurous would go to Greece. And they start to really appreciate the, the, the forms of the ancient world, the, the architecture, the statuary, and they also start to really fall in love with the, what they think is the aesthetics of the ancient world, which they see as being very kind of um, almost minimalist, very pure. What they didn't really know is that the ancients used to paint their beautiful white statues. So if you go into the British Museum, which you should, and you go into and see all the marbles in there, which you should, that's not how the ancient Greeks saw it. The ancient Greeks used to paint them bright colors, and, uh, but the paint wore off. But we know that they were painted because now we have the technology to find those ancient, ancient, ancient flakes of paint embedded in the marble. So neoclassical is about celebrating a kind of idealized sense of the classical. And this is a good example. This is a painting by Jacques-Louis David of a, uh, a particular incident which supposedly happened in the early days of ancient Rome, which, you know, it's been written about. The Roman historians wrote about it. We don't know if it's true or not. Let's assume it was. Uh, these three brothers who swear a terrible oath to avenge something happened. And there they are, swearing the oath, and there's their family, mom, and everybody crying because they know there's a really good chance that they're not going to make it back, which, as far as I remember, they didn't. That was but he's, you know, he's wanting to um, valorize self-sacrifice. He's got this red cloak, which possibly acts as a kind of a foreshadowing of the sacrifice that's become. Got this very sort of classical pose. So the language of gesture, we start to really see that in art. It's interesting to look at how um, artists present the, their subjects, the kind of body language they have their subjects um, doing. So you've got two really different body languages. This is the body language of worry and grief here, and then you've got the body language of sort of noble sort of self-confidence uh, and uh, self-sacrifice. And uh, so it's interesting that he's very aware. He went on to become, you've probably seen his pictures before, one of the, uh, he supported the French Revolution, he was in the uh, government for a while, and eventually he, uh, he became Napoleon's court painter. He did that famous painting, Napoleon on the horse crossing the Alps. So he was very much embedded in that sort of revolutionary project. 
So I'd like you to think, I'm going to flip through these again. I'd like you to think, this is just a few examples. I'm not going to give you the whole history of art because that would take too long. In this long history from the 15th century to the, the 5th century, the end of the 18th century, where are the similarities and differences? What are they doing that's similar and what are they doing that's different? So I'm just going to go through these again. We've got the basilicas and the tally. The Virgin with the Angel. This one you can see in London. We've got Bacchus and Ariadne. We've got the seaport. And we've got the Ophidac. You've got to go to the Louvre to see that. So, let's think about it. Anybody got any thoughts about that? This is not a message of color. Sorry? In most of them, there's a symbolic usage of color. Okay. Um, can you give an example? Well, I think you gave an example in the last one. Mm-hmm. I mean, red, red often sort of implies kind of uh, passion, sacrifice. It could be, it can imply something sexual, I think, although I think not in this picture, mm-hmm. but in other pictures we might. But it's definitely some intense experience. When you see red in any quantity, yes. A lot, well, all of them sort of, if it's focusing on a person, is of an upper class or the royalty or something that absolutely to do with peasantry yeah. or the lower. It's all sort of. Is that the seaport? Yeah, that's something when it's looking at people. Yeah, well, yeah, that's right. The seaport doesn't show. It doesn't really focus on people at yeah. all. But you're right. It's showing people going about normal business. Now there was, of course. Painters who did want to show ordinary people. I'm, I'm going to get on to that next. But that, that's a good example, though, that there was a reason why the Holy Family pictures were often they're represented. There's one by Veronese where they're dripping in jewels. Mm-hmm. It's like okay, <laughs> um, this idea, this sort of idealization. Um, yeah, there, there was definitely that. Yes. These have been. I'm interested in how these subjects are chosen. Are they? Mainly commissioned. These, I mean, all these kind of great these pictures, yes. These pictures, yes. I mean, there are there are examples of paintings which were not commissioned, but um, these the big paintings people didn't paint them for fun. They would sure. have been commissioned because they're very time consuming. They often had to be done with a team of assistants, um, and uh, that does, of course, dictate to some extent the not just the subject matter, but the way it would be rendered. So in this period of time, up until about the end of the 18th century, certainly in the first, from the medieval through the, the, to the beginning of the 18th century, paintings were largely commissioned by the aristocracy or by the church. The interesting thing is, as we'll see um, in the next section, the church did start to become quite interested in commissioning paintings that didn't just show sort of upper class life but for quite specific reasons uh, the aristocracy dukes, princes, they commissioned there were painters who did pictures just for themselves many of them did but they were usually smaller in the 18th century it starts to change because the bourgeoisie actually start to commission painting, started mainly portraits but by the end of the 18th century you see an interest in landscape painting, people start to buy landscape painting because they like it 
and uh, you get and you, you get to see the sort of the expansion of the sort of the the non-official picture, I suppose. Um, but don't forget, even though these paintings were great big, huge paintings that were um, commissioned by the church or by the aristocrat, many of them got reproduced. And there are two ways in which pictures were reproduced. One, you'd actually hire a painter to do a copy. I mean, I remember a few months ago, I went to visit Marble Hill House down in Twickenham. It's a stately home. There's this big Rubens on the wall. I thought, is there really a Rubens? So I asked, and they said, no, it's a copy. And I thought, well, that's interesting. So I went and I did some research, and I found that actually there was a lot of proliferation of copies. If you had a bit of money, as those people did, um, they would just hire a painter to go, okay, go to Italy or wherever the picture is, copy it, bring it back to England, and I'll install it in my house. So people got to see more pictures than you'd think because there were a lot of copies around. I mean, many of them didn't survive, but there were quite a lot of them. No, that was cheaper than just... Oh, yeah, well, you couldn't get that, Rubens. There was only one. It was owned by the king. Um, The other thing is uh, reproduction in uh, printing. Uh, Up until the 19th century, it was difficult to get a really good reproduction of the painting. You could get it. You could could have uh, etching and um, dry points and things like that. And they were, you know, apparently uh, Samuel Pepys used to own a print of the famous painting of Charles II's mistress, Nell Gwynne, which is famously full frontal nudity. He used to have it, I guess, look at it. Mm. Um, (laughs) In the 19th century, lithography was developed, which allows for a really, really accurate replication of a painting. And that, of course, allowed uh, uh, images to... Now, today, of course, you can go to the National Gallery, look at the painting, and then go to the gallery shop and buy print it whatever size you want. You could take it home and stick it on your wall. Um, it, it allowed people, when printing was made available, and as the technique got better and better, it allowed more people to see the pictures, which of course allowed people, more people to be influenced by art. And so in the, se- in the 18th century, particularly in Britain, you start to see a lot of people becoming artists. And they came, many, most of them came from what, you know, in those days, you would have considered humble backgrounds. You know, Turner's uh, father was a barber. Um, uh, Gainsborough's father was a postman. You know, mm-hmm. things like that. But their sons uh, became incredibly successful and famous artists. And uh, there's a big argument today that are we now, with art education the way it is, are we, are we stifling the opportunities for people who basically aren't rich to go and study art? Uh, that's a good question, and it's one I think that this is a debate which can continue. Anything else people want to say about these pictures? The horizon? Mm-hmm. You're right. By the time we get to Titian, we're really getting a sense that what's happening is happening in a place, and that place has the idea of the, the, the specific specificity of it, the type of trees, the type of landscape, uh, although it's not meant to be a, it's not meant to be a specific place, you do get a more uh, a connection <coughs> with it. And yeah, you're right. You've got the horizon and the water, and, and you find this with a number of the paintings at that time. And here, of course, you've got a very strong sense, very strong sense of it. Um, if you go to the National Gallery, there's a number of pictures by Claude, which have this incredible uh, painting of light. And of course, he was a real influence on Turner. If any of you have been to the 
the Tate Britain and seen the Turner collection. There's some Turners in the National Gallery as well. So that's a sort of a very brief run through on sort of fairly kind of representative works from the history of art. I, I finished at the end of the 18th century because by the time we get to the 19th century, the, there's a lot more art, there's a lot more pictures, there's a lot more artists, and that's when we start to get to sort of the, the, the movements. Um, and then we start to break it down. We don't have a big long century, which we call the Baroque. We've got like sort of, you know, we break it down into sort of 20, 30, 50 year chunks. And by the time it gets to the 20th century, there's a movement just about every 10, 10 years. And that's, I think, one of the limitations of that sort of linear appreciation of art. Because um, by the time we get closer to the present time, it becomes difficult. But I think that's one of the things we need to bear in mind. All the pictures that I'm showing you here were done a really long time ago. And they've stood the test of time. The reason this is sitting in the Louvre and the Titian is sitting in the National Gallery is that we've had a good few hundred years to think about these pictures and say, are they really good? Do we want to continue to look at them? Whereas with more recent artworks, we don't have that perspective. We, we, we might think that's great, and then, like with, I don't know if any of you have really, really embarrassing records that you listen to when you were young, you go, oh, I'm really horrible stuff now. Art's not quite as bad as that, but every single museum on the planet has got a basement uh, which has pictures in it that they figure people don't really want to see that. Um, it might, might have been considered good at the time, but we don't think it's good now. Of course, that can change and they get dragged up again. But the time test to know whether something is really important or not, that is something we have to, we have to uh, take into account. We have no idea if in, say, 100 years, if anyone would look at a Damien Hirst work or a bank searing. We have no idea. Maybe they will, maybe they won't. And the least person that has any clue whether that will happen is, of course, the artist. They can only hope, but they have no control over it. So the linear approach to art is very useful, but it has obviously these quite limitations. So let's look at more, I suppose, recent ways of looking at, uh, at art. Uh, let's call it the postmodern way, and it's about looking slightly differently at a picture. Looking at just looking beyond, for example, the great man here and the artists themselves, uh, looking beyond simply techniques um, and, and influences. Much of art history is about, oh, Bob did the picture this way because he was influenced by Stan, who painted that five years ago, and you know, and that's that's okay as far as it goes. But you know, to really get to grips with an artwork, that's probably not enough. You do want to look. So. A more postmodern, i.e., recent approach to looking at art can include things like look at the social issues which surround the artwork. They may be depicted in the artwork or they may not be, but they're somehow referred to in the artwork. You can look at the uh, psychology, the psychology of the artist, um, using a sort of Freudian, Lacanian uh, uh, theorizations, and lots of good stuff written on that. You could look, depending on some works, you could look at the way in which gender or race are represented. And, of course, you can look at the artwork in relationship to other artworks. So I'm going to just show you a picture which I find really interesting, which is at the Tate Britain. It's an example of what we call history painting. Uh, most of the pictures I just saw you showed you are history paintings, but really big pictures. 
And this one actually depicts something which really, which sort of happened. Um, this is a painting called The Death of Major Pearson, 6th of January, 1781. And it's, uh, it's an incident that happened during uh, one of the periodic wars between Britain and France. And this was a battle that happened in the Channel Islands. Obviously, because it was in the Channel Islands, it was neither the biggest nor most important battle that happened. Um, and what's notable about it is that the major was shot by a sniper. Now, the artist was an American artist called John Singleton Copley. And he decided to paint this moment when the major was shot. Now... As I said, it's not a re- it wasn't commissioned by the Major's family. He chose to do this picture. Um, and what's really interesting about the picture, which makes it very different from most other pictures painted, not just at the time, but up until then, is that, have a look at this guy here. This is one of the very, very, very few images we have in art history of a black person taking an active role in doing something. Unfortunately, because of the history of slavery, etc., most of the pictures which have survived, not all, but many of the pictures that have survived of black people painted by, by European artists are of servants. Okay? And that actually really continues right through the 19th century. Think about Manet's painting Olympia, etc., Copley does something different. He takes this moment, which was recorded, that that when the major was shot, there he is there, his, um, there's a, uh, there's a term which I don't really know for the the assistant, like I think it's like the Batman or something, let's call it his his, um, assistant, uh, here, grabbed his gun and shot the sniper. Now, is that a historic moment? Is that accurate? We don't know. First of all, um, there's a lot of historical records that seem to say, well, actually, he didn't shoot him right then and there. He was, you know, he, he, sh- he shot a sniper. He may not have been the one that killed the major, and it didn't happen at the same time. That's historians quibbling. But for our purposes, really interesting is the choices that Copley made. First of all, it's really exciting. You've got the, <coughs> you've got the, the, the cannon and the gunfire and the smoke there. You've got the civilians running away in terror. <coughs> You've got the battle, quite nasty, over there. You've got this sort of crush of soldiers panicking because they're being sniped at. And then you've got the hero right here, center, just slightly off center, because the major's in the center. He's the one who's actually doing something. Now, if that picture was of a white active subject, we wouldn't really notice. It would be one of many pictures like that. But what's really interesting is that Copley chose to do this picture. So we need to ask ourselves, why would he do that? That's very interesting that he would do that. He had a lot of choices of pictures to paint, had a lot of ways in which he could paint this picture. He chooses to do it like this. And then you think, okay, what was going on at the time? Well, in the 1780s, there was a lot of talk in England about abolition of slavery. Copley was born in America. 
started his career in the United States, in, 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 in um, colonial America, sorry, came to England to further his career. And the conversation around at the time was getting rid of slavery and um, rejecting the slavery which existed in America. This was painted obviously after the, uh, the, the American Revolution, which he didn't participate in the state here. And there's talk now of you know, ab abolishing the slave trade and so on. So he doesn't actually get involved. He never paints that. Okay? <coughs> what he does do is he paints us the picture of a black man who is active, heroic, and crucially, actively on the side of Britain, the British Empire, all of this. So in one, with one picture, he essentially makes a case for looking at black people in his society in a very different way to the way I guess he would have grown up with, living in a, in a, in a place that had slavery. Um, now the interesting thing is this picture is was kind of not thought very important for a long time because you know he oh yeah another history painting about the glories of the British army who wants to see something like that but through a postmodern reading of the picture we can see that actually he's doing something that was actually radically different and um, you know there's it, it starts to make us think about the way in which things like race are represented in painting how there's a sort of a standard kind of image of the servant, etc. And then occasionally you've got these sort of, you know, moments where there's an alternative representation. Then of course it also makes you think, but where are the black painters who are able to be part of art history to represent themselves? And you start to notice those gaps that the first really sort of internationally recognized black painter uh, Henry Osawa Tanner doesn't appear until a century later, and he spends most of his life in Paris. So we start, we can actually use a painting to learn something about the society and also about the way in which art triggers us to think in a bigger, uh, in a bigger way. Any comments on this? Thoughts? In many ways, it's a very conventional painting. It's a, it's a really, it's a huge, we can go and see it in the take, huge, bombastic sort of history painting, but he's, he is definitely doing something a bit different. Now, I want to move on to uh, visual art and the artist, what the artist is trying to tell us, and what can we infer from what we see. And this is where we get on to looking at... Um, representation of ordinary people, actually less than ordinary, really the lowest class. And this is uh, a work by uh, Caravaggio, who's one of the great 17th century painters. This is an illustration of a biblical story called The Supper of Emmaus, which is a story about uh, Christ goes to this uh, inn and he sits down and has dinner with these people. They don't recognize, they're his followers, but they don't recognize him. Now, previous renderings of the picture tended to kind of prettify it a bit. Caravaggio gets 
actual working class people in an actual inn as his models and he used to get people off the street, prostitutes, urchins, kind of, you know, blacksmiths, and he used to use them as his models. So we've got real strong realism in Caravaggio's pictures. So we've got this one. He did two versions of the picture. This one and this the, this one is in the National Gallery. And then we've got this one, which was painted a few years later, which is in Milan. It's, uh, it's equally realistic. He's done something slightly different, though. In this one here, there's more light, and you've got a clear depiction of the people, and there's the serving man uh, there, he's kind of attending, and he's listening to, to Jesus. And then in the second one, we've got two servants, and, then, and one of the diners is almost completely in the shadow, and uh, even Jesus is half in the shadow. But we really notice the servants. And again, Caravaggio is saying here that the message, Christ's message is for everybody, especially the servants, especially the poorest people. Now, is this just Caravaggio's whim to kind of offer up these images of, of hardworking people and poor people? No, it's embedded in the social structure and the political structure. This is the period, what, which we call post-Reformation, when the Catholic Church was trying to essentially recover its power after the Reformation. And so they understood that really in order to... One of the things that Protestantism had done very successfully was to kind of connect with ordinary people. The Catholic Church realized that if we don't do that, we're going to lose them. And so they started to really um, invest in painters who could bring a new kind of realism into their work uh, to put these works in the churches. Okay, Because people go to church and then they would see people who look like them receiving a message from Christ. Okay, So it's a very much a strategy. But, of course, you don't want to be too realistic. Absolute realism essentially would be a CCTV camera, and that's horrible. What Caravaggio does is he uses light and shade to dramatize it. So you've got this sort of three things going on here. There's Caravaggio's personal talent and his understanding of the light and shade. It's a technique called tenebrism or chiaroscuro. And then you've got um, the needs of the church to try to reach out to the mass of the population. And then you've got the, essentially, again, that cinematic quality, that part, that thing that makes the whole thing kind of come together for the viewer. We're not, today we're not interested in what the Catholic Church in the 17th century wanted. And, you know, unless you're really obsessed with the techniques of painting, understanding the relationships between light and shade and tenebrism is, you know, maybe it's interesting. But the main thing is, why do these pictures speak to us? Why are they still so powerful? If you go to see this one at the National Gallery, it's extremely powerful. So you need to ask yourself, why when I'm standing in front of this picture is it so fascinating? Is it so, I can come back to it again and again? And it's probably little things, like for example, the way when you're looking at the picture, it's harder to see it on the screen here, this arm really feels like it's jumping out of the picture. It's reaching to you. 
the way that she creates this sort of reaching arm, the way in which the, the dish of fruit is just kind of edging off the table, the way in which the chicken looks really delicious. And it makes you sort of think, actually, after I've been to the gallery, I'm going to go and have a bite to eat, which the cafe probably really likes. So it's that kind of the little things that really bring it together. So you've got the social context, you've got the artist's sort of us understanding of the psychology of dark and light, and then you've got this sort of almost the miracle where it continues to speak to us, you know, over the centuries. So... But what about a picture like this? Mm -hmm. Kind of easy to deal with Caravaggio. But when you come to Mark Rothko, Black on the Room, this, this is in the Take On, and there's actually a bunch of them, I'll show them to you. This is a little bit harder. And there's two ways of understanding uh, painting like this. There's the art history way, and then there's going and sitting in front of it way. The art history way will tell you how Mark Rothko eventually came from being a representational painter and a muralist, eventually came to creating these canvases, huge canvases saturated in pure color, and how he wanted to reflect the sort of the tragedy of existence, and then he killed himself. Which is true. Okay, of course he killed himself mainly because he had cancer and uh, not because you know, was understood as paintings, and he actually was quite old by then, so it's not really a soap opera story, although it's tragic in its own way. And then there's a story about how these paintings got to be in the Tate. He was commissioned by a, a restaurant in the Seagram building. They said, well, we want a bunch of nice abstract canvases, Mark, we'll give you X amount of money. He painted them, and he went one day to the, to the restaurant, he saw these rich people eating, he said, I'm not going to paint my pictures for these people, I don't like this. And so he offered the paintings to the Tate, which he obviously accepted them. You could know all of this, and it's certainly entertaining to know it, but the reality is that with abstract painting, you just have to be in front of it. You, it's going to mean something different to everybody. Of course, Rothko knew that by using these colors, he was going to have a completely different effect on you than if he'd used pink and yellow, and there are pink and yellow pictures as well. So it's about understanding things like color symbolism, the juxtaposition of color, how size works. You know, these pictures are big. If they're really small, they would have a different effect. So interpreting something like this, it's really about you being very aware of what you feel that you're experiencing. And then you can go and read the story about why they were painted and how they were painted, etc. And that's very true for abstract art, that the experience of the art, because it's not representational, is going to be really, really important. Um, and the story, in a, in a sense, comes later. With something like Titian, uh, Bacchus, and Ariadne, he painted it for people that knew the myth already. I mean, some of you might know it, some of you might not. But his audience, they were educated people. Um, at that time, it was considered, if you didn't know your Greek and Latin, then you're a waste of space. So they would have known exactly who um, Bacchus and Ariadne were, and they would have been very happy with it. They probably wouldn't have cared much for this. But this is 20, 20th century art. It reflects the times. It reflects the society. It reflects our interest in psychology. 
we, um, this was art made in the 19, uh, I'm not sure, 19, yeah, 1958, post-war. Don't forget, Mark Rothko was Jewish. He himself hadn't been, he was, you know, his family had emigrated from Russia, but he was by 1958, you know, he had been very aware of the Holocaust and the, the, what, it, what humanity had done to itself. And so he's, he's painting a psychological melancholy that he felt, but he also understood communicate. Also were aware of tragedy and sorrow. It might have touched them. They may have been people who had it in their lives. Today we can appreciate it because, with, especially with rolling news, we see tragedy and horror all the time. And it becomes, on TV, we almost become desensitized. But when we spend time in the space with abstract art, we have that space of reflection. And so there's a psychological uh, underpinning to what he's doing, which again allows it to stand the test of time. Now, I could say a lot more about how to appreciate abstract art, but we don't have time. So I'm going to just quickly move on to our last section, which is visual art in the times. What about visual art that isn't about a canvas sitting on the wall dogged in paint, or a sculpture carved out of, uh, out of marble or stone or bronze? This is work that you can, this is the work you can see in the Tate Modern by Louise Nevelson. What's interesting about it is it's difficult to see it on this slide, but trust me, if you go and look it up on the Tate website, or even better, go to the Tate. This is our first woman artist, by the way, of this lecture. They may have found objects. Nevelson's approach to sculpture was to scour everywhere for found objects, bring them to her studio, assemble them, and then paint them in one uniform color. She tended to paint them in black, white, or gold. And they're so intricate, the way in which she fitted them together, and then by, by painting them, this uniform matte black, they seem like one thing. And so this is, again, this is uh, 1959, this is sort of mid 20th century, it's the art of the found object, and it's, there's, it's a number of approaches that artists started to take after the Second World War, to actually scour the physical world around you for objects which can be incorporated into the art. Now this is an example from a sculpture, but you also have a Robert Rauschenberg. And by the way, at the end of this year, there's going to be a big Robert Rauschenberg exhibition. His pictures are almost, his work's almost never seen in this country, so I would urge you to go. There's a couple of his works in the tape. This is a two-dimensional thing. Nevinson's was a, uh, Nevelson's was a, a, a three-dimensional. What uh, Rauschenberg did is combine collage of, of photographs and found objects with paint. So that's when we start to see the incorporation of other things into the artwork. Um, the idea of you could, uh, you could paint, print, and collage onto one surface, and that would be your, that would be your artwork. And so this idea of what about the material things in the world and how can they be, not, not in themselves necessarily art, I mean, not in a sense conceptual art has sort of offered us that idea, but leaving purely conceptual art out, how can the material things actually um, be transfigured, if you want to call it that, into art? Um, and it, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting question. But it also brings up 
And a very important point is where's that dividing line between somebody and something which is accepted as art by the art world, by the cultural sort of, you know, those who are in charge of saying what's good and what's not, which is critics, curators, professors, um, funding organizations, uh, all of whom have a greater or lesser degree of expertise. But we tend to receive what they offer. So when the tape says, this is a good picture, we're going to put it in the tape, we go there and we look at it and say, this must be good because it's in the tape, right? Usually we're, usually that's correct. Sometimes maybe you might not like it. But um, there is a question. How do we know that something is really good art? What about when something, we look at it and we say it's good art, but it doesn't appear in a recognized collection. What if it appears in the street, for example? So we have to ask ourselves, who decides what's art? And um, even more importantly, where do we find art? Well, we do, of course, find it in a museum, but we can find it in the street. This is an example. I'm sure you might have aware of Banksy. This is from Banksy's new body of work, which he's been doing recently and continuing to do in Calais which, as I'm sure you know, is the site of a huge issue around uh, uh, refugee and, and migration issues. Now, this is a picture, a stencil, because he's a stencil artist, that he put on a wall in Calais, over, over writing uh, some existing graffiti. Now, this is an interesting one, because it obviously refers to what's been happening in the Mediterranean with boatloads of people um, trying to go from the uh, places where they're uh, fleeing by boat into Europe for, uh, uh, for uh, rescue. And of course the boats very often uh, capsize and, and people die. But instead of just, say for example, taking a newspaper picture of that, what he's done is he's gone back to art history to a picture by uh, Theodore Yeriko called the Wrath of the Medusa, painted in 1818, which was also a story that came out of the news. It was a shipwreck, and at the end of the ship, uh, at, at the time of the rescue, most of the people who'd been wrecked in the ship had died. There was just a raft, and I think something like 15 out of 150 people were, were, um, were salvaged, and there have been stories that they had to eat each other, and cannibalism, and things like that. So it's, a, it's quite... Terrifying image, and it's an image of human desperation. And it was a, a sensation when it came out in in in, um, in Paris in in 1818, and it was one of the first topical pictures that came right out of a news article. And so, of course, Banksy goes right back to it when he wants to underline what he sees as being the absolute importance of what's going on. Now, you're not going to see this picture. It's not in the gallery because it can't be taken on the wall. Now, of course, there's been a whole sub-market of people who peel Banksy pictures off the wall and, uh, and sell them. And, I mean, that's obviously the kind of world we live in. But that's not Banksy's intention. But we have to accept the fact that there's, a commerci there's been a, a commerciality to street art. Um, some of it... Um, connived in by the artists, mainly because they don't, because they sort of have to. Uh, others um, refuse to be part of that. But it's it's quite difficult this sort of commodification of, uh, of street art. 
But the problem is that if you take this out of the situation in Calais, it's not really, really a good artwork. It's not even really interesting. It's a stencil of uh, the, the Raft of the Medusa. It's only important because of where it's been put. It's only important because of when he did it. And I just want to finish up by showing you uh, two pictures of artwork that I curated. This was uh, artwork by a painter called uh, Nazir Tambouli. And uh, we did a project where we took over an entire um, uh, housing estate which was about to be demolished and undergo regeneration. So essentially what Nazir did is he covered the estate, which was a few people still living on it, but the rest of it was boarded up and looked so hideous and depressing. So he said, I want to cover it in murals and I want them to just be funny. Funny and fun. Nothing political, because it wasn't a thing political. I mean, it was going to happen, and it actually was a very good uh, regeneration, one of the very few that's been amazing. Um, and he wanted it to be funny and fun and quirky, and using different techniques. So this is one, and then here's another one. Essentially eradicating the boarded up. You can't really see them, but the bricked up windows, turning it all, the whole street on two sides into a kind of art, artwork. And uh, of course, with something like this, it, it doesn't stay. It has to be, uh, it has to be, um, it got demolished when the buildings got demolished. So um, there was no intentionality to create work for the museum or for posterity or for, for financial gain because it couldn't be. So there's also that direction in art, is that idea of the ephemeral, something that's only meant to stay for a short period of time. You've got to see it when it's there. You've got to appreciate it when it's there. After that, it only exists, for example, in a photograph. And the last image, I wasn't involved in this one, actually. Uh, a picture, a graffiti in Berlin, a piece of street art, and uh, I haven't been to Berlin since then, but the story is that the artists who did this painted over it because they wanted to protest the way in which um, Berlin was being gentrified and the street art was being commodified. Uh, and people selling albums of pictures of street art, offering expensive street art tours. And they said, we didn't do this art for that. This artwork is quite political. So you know what, we're just going to paint over it and then paint it over. I haven't been to Berlin since, but I'm curious to see what's up there now. So we go from, you know, uh, in the 5th century artwork on the inside, on the walls of the church, through sort of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of sort of canvas paintings. And finally we end up on the streets of Berlin. But it's all part of one thing, which is art. It's all part of our really innate human desire to make visual images. And really when you appreciate it like that, that's the first step you can take to you know, starting to interpret. And as I said, you interpret art the way that is most meaningful to you.